reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3 and it's on page 1180 in the church bible finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you watch out for those dogs those men who do evil those mutilators of the flesh for it is we who are the circumcision we who worship by the spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reasons for such confidence if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law a Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness faultless but but whatever was to my profit I now consider loss for the sake of Christ what is more I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me brothers I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus all of us who are mature should take such a view of things and if on some point you think differently that too God will make clear to you only let us live up to what we have already attained join with others in following my example brothers and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you for as I have often told you before and now say again even with tears many live as enemies of the cross of Christ their destiny is destruction their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame their mind is on earthly things but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body thanks be to God for his word Well, the main theme we've been looking at in this series on Philippians is, of course, joy. 
how can we find true, lasting joy? Not the uh, moment of, uh, the fleeting moment of happiness that Sebastian Vettel may be experiencing as the world Formula One champion, or even the England rugby team having beaten Australia last week and Samoa yesterday. How long will that moment of happiness last? It's interesting to read this week, I don't know whether you've read the papers about uh, the government's plans to introduce a new measurement of the health of the country. Instead of just relying on indices like GDP, they want to measure people's happiness. And so they're going to be introducing a new measure called GWB, which I thought was referring to George W. Bush, but um, apparently it's general well-being. Um, which is fine, but I guess for most people their general well-being will depend on their financial situation to a large extent. But the joy that we read about in this passage that Susan has read out for us is not dependent on our circumstances, financial or otherwise. It's not dependent on how things are going in this world or on our state of mind. No, it depends on the one who made us, the one who knows us and the one who came into our world so that we might know him. And so when Paul says to the Philippians in uh, uh, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 there, that um, starts this passage of, Finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He's pointing to where they will find real joy. Rejoice in the Lord. But Paul knows there are many people promoting a different way of life who risk undermining that joy that these Philippian Christians have already experienced. And so he's warning them against such people in no uncertain terms here. You, know, you may have read the um, tract uh, called Two Ways to Live, um, this one here. Uh, if you're a Christian, you may even have tried to scribbling the diagrams down on the, the back of a beer mat as you've tried to explain to your, your friend who's not a Christian what Christianity is all about. And in that short summary of Christianity, there are two options, living our way or living God's way. And that is true, but as Sir Tim was pointing out earlier, that there are actually different ways in which we can live our way. And uh, what we have in this passage are actually three ways to live. There are two wrong ways and one right way. And I'm going to look at the, the wrong ways first before we come on to, to the right way. And as, we do, as I do that, I don't want you to think I'm being judgmental of your particular way of life, if this, if this happens to describe you here this morning. Um, but I do hope that as we look at the lasting joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ that you will find that life much more meaningful and attractive to you. All of these other ways of living, first of all, well, the first one of those is trusting in one's own goodness. Paul moves very quickly from telling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord to warning them against certain people. And although it only appears once in the translation, three times Paul tells them to watch out in verse 2 here. He says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. You may think, well, why such strong words? What, why such a strong warning? Are these people really that bad? Well, the reason that he's worried about them is because he was once one of them. He knows what motivates them. He knows what they're like. He knows the dangers of pursuing such a way of life. In terms of social position, in terms of professional achievement, Paul had been a, a high flyer. But he knew that in the eyes of God, as he lived that life, he was nothing. 
if we were to live a, look at a, a CV of somebody in our country with a pretty impressive CV in terms of social position and um, personal achievement, I guess the Prime Minister's CV wouldn't be a bad one to have a look at. So I have to, a quick summary here of uh, David Cameron. You might not be able to read that uh, all, uh, small writing there very clearly. But um, what, uh, what it shows there is somebody who has had uh, a privileged background, um, a very good education, who's achieved much personally, leading to a rapid rise to the top. And for a Jew in the first century, Paul had the ideal CV. He is described here. He has the right background, looks circumcised, five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. And he can demonstrate good achievements as he carries on. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He was in an enviable position of wealth and power. And yet, he says, whatever was to my profit, in verse 7, I now consider loss. I've lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish. And the question you might have is why, or somebody in the first century might have had, is why would he give up that life that most people would do anything for and now consider it as rubbish? Why was he warning the Philippians against people who were still living the lifestyle that he used to live? And the reason he gives this here is that they have put their confidence in the wrong thing. They have put their confidence in the flesh. Now this word flesh translated here is not to be confused with modern day use of flesh, which is usually in connection with sex, the sins of the flesh and all that. This is, this is different what he's getting at to here. What he's saying is, is our human nature. You know, the state that we are all born into. A state that the Bible tells us is sinful. And so to have confidence in the flesh is to have confidence in oneself and to not realise that as humans we are actually fallible and we are enslaved to sin. Now that sinfulness is not a state that some are born into and others not, we are all born sinful. We all remain in that state until by God's grace we are born again and we receive the Spirit who transforms us. But you may still ask, well, why does Paul use such strong language for these people? You know, why does he call them dogs, evil workers, mutilators of the flesh? You know, when you read those words, you think, well, he must be referring to some pretty evil people here. You know, some of those people that Hannah was talking about last uh, Sunday evening at the women's breakfast as well come to mind, those, those traffickers, um, those pimps. But actually, he's talking here about socially respectable people. The priests and the Pharisees who people looked up to, who, who on the surface lived pretty decent lives. Why are they described here as evil? Well, the answer is that they think that they are pretty decent people. They've put their confidence in themselves. They, they think they've got it sussed, that God is pretty pleased with them because, well, they follow all the, the rules, all the ceremonial requirements like circumcision, it says here. They're trying to tick the boxes and then they create new rules and regulations so they can tick more boxes. But they're blind to their greatest sin, which is that of pride. And in their own blindness, they are leading other people into blindness. Jesus was quick to point out their pride when he told a parable of a Pharisee who prayed publicly. He said uh, of this Pharisee, he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He's saying, look at me, aren't I great? 
Aren't you pleased with me, God? But Jesus said, the one who is actually justified before God was the tax collector, who said, who stood at a distance, says he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, in our day, there will be those who are proud of uh, maybe their church attendance, maybe their, their service in the church, maybe their service in the community. And they will rely on that to be accepted by God. There will be others who don't necessarily claim to be Christians, but who simply consider themselves as good people and think that on the day of judgment, that will be sufficient for them. But Paul is saying here, watch out. Don't be misled by these people. And before we get too critical, though, you know, and become guilty of pride ourselves, you know, the reason Paul is warning the Philippians against them is because it is an attractive option, one sometimes that we slip into without even realising it. You know, we may have started serving God in, in an area out of love and, and gratitude, and without even realising it, we somehow become proud of what uh, we believe to be our achievements, rather than God working through us. But what about the other way of life that Paul warns about? That one is trusting in our own goodness, The second one is living for self, living for ourselves. Have a look down at verse 18, towards the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. It brings tears to Paul's eyes to say that there are many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Most of them without even realising it. It brings tears because he knows that their destiny is destruction. If you live as an enemy of Christ in this life, he's saying, then you will remain an enemy in the life to come. But how does he describe an, an enemy of Christ? Is it someone who goes on a sort of jihad against Christians or someone who just actively opposes the church? Paul's examples are quite different. The first one is that they're people whose God is their stomach. They live for pleasure. To say that their God is their stomach is to say that they are led by their their appetites. Whether it's for food or for sex or for success, they want pleasure, they want fulfilment. And the thing is that there isn't actually anything wrong with any of these pleasures in themselves in the right context. The key word there is God with a small g. When we begin to worship these things, then there is a problem. And each one of us will be prone to, to one thing more than another. And so we've got to be careful about judging somebody for falling for that trap in one area, but then forgetting that in our own lives we are falling for it in another. For one person, for example, the occasional playing of computer games may lead to an obsession that leads to, to sleep loss, that leads to poor performance at work, leads to um, frustration of relationships, irritability. And another may not be tempted at all by computer games, but will find comfort in retail therapy. You know, give it a, a fancy sounding name and, we can, uh, and it sounds okay, but ultimately it's an addiction to buying things, accumulating goods. And simply because these Philippians have become Christians didn't mean they weren't prone to replacing the worship of God with the worship of things. And pleasure. As the commentator Alec Matia wrote, he wrote, The bodily sin is never far beneath the surface of the most advanced saint. 
and the warning is always necessary. Living for pleasure. What's the next one? Well, living by one's own rules. Their glory is in their shame. When we become Christians, our sin becomes clear to us. That is part of the process of becoming a Christian. Um, There are things that we used to do that we no longer do because we realise that they are wrong. They're not pleasing to God. The temptation is still there. And the danger is that we give in to that temptation and then instead of repenting of it, we begin to justify it. We begin to find excuses for doing it. And this is what I think Paul means by the phrase, their glory is in their shame. They value things and behaviour which they ought to be ashamed of, but are not. And that is the trouble when absolute truth is denied. We've got to be aware that we are living in a relativistic society where each person decides what is right for him. And what is right for him or for her changes with the situation. The most important indicator for many people is, is what do I feel is right? That's what people use as a system for making decisions. And the trouble is, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you result in just total anarchy. Two 17-year-old girls in Australia confessed a couple of years ago to, to murdering their friend. And when they were interviewed by police, they said, we just did it because we felt like it. We knew it was wrong, but it didn't feel wrong at all. It just felt right. Now, no normal human being would condone their actions, but, but on what basis won't we? Because if we live by our own rules, who is it to say that what is right and what is wrong? God's rules never change because he is truth. Living by our own rules, and finally in this uh, section, living for the moment. Their mind is on earthly things. To live for the moment is to focus on present personal happiness. They've got to have it now mentality. It's all about now. Marketing companies thrive on it, don't they? The peer pressure of having to, to have the latest fashion item. You can't put it off. You need it now, whether it's this year's Christmas toy, whether it's a, a dress like Kate Middleton, or the latest eye gadget. And characteristic of this way of life is, is, is living for the moment, a mind that is on earthly things, assuming that this life is all there is, and so let's just make the most of it. But Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We don't really belong here. This is not our home, so don't get too attached to it. Focus on what will stand you in good stead when you get home and are with the Lord in glory. In all these things, Paul is saying, don't be misled, because it's easy to go from enjoying the pleasures of this world to worshipping them as gods. So if neither of these two ways of living is any good, that is, trusting in our own goodness or living for, for ourselves, what is the life that Paul has given up everything for that is so good? Where well, it's basically living for Christ, for Jesus Christ, finding confidence, finding enjoyment in Jesus. One of the problems of living in a society that encourages self-confidence, that tells you you are capable of anything, is that there will be a lot of casualties. I've been reading a book recently by a young woman who has suffered from depression. It's a very honest and open account of her, her struggle. Uh, she doesn't really try and blame anybody or or anything for causing her depression, but she does mention the pressure that young people are under today 
where they're told they have unlimited potential. You know, it's all down to them. Just live up to your potential. Because the trouble is, if they don't achieve that, then that can have a devastating impact on many young people. It's not surprising how many lack confidence in themselves. Well, Paul was someone who didn't suffer from that. He was somebody who was able to have confidence in himself, and yet he did give that all up. And he said in verse 7, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. If you compare Paul's position before he became a Christian, when he had power, wealth, authority, status, to his position afterwards, when he experiences imprisonment, flogging, shipwreck, cold, hunger, you would say, why give all that up? That just seems crazy. But what he says here is to know Christ Jesus as Lord is of surpassing greatness. There is nothing like it. It is worth giving everything up for. Why? Well, the answer is there in verse 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He's saying that is how we're made right with God. That is what brings us peace in our hearts through faith that the death and the resurrection of Christ has enabled us to be forgiven. To be forgiven for trying to live our lives our way. And that is why we can, as Paul says in verse 3, glory, literally boast in Christ Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. We'll be celebrating that, of course, shortly around the table. We don't boast in ourselves, and that is really the meaning of those who put no confidence in the flesh. We don't trust in our own efforts to make ourselves right with God. We trust in him, we glory in him. And that is why Paul calls others enemies of the cross of Christ. Because they don't think that Christ's death on the cross actually achieved anything. Well, to have confidence in Jesus means we don't need to worry about any of our own sense of inadequacy, our own maybe poor esteem in the eyes of the world because we have one who loves us unconditionally and with such confidence that can give us lasting joy. So the question I just want to ask you is, where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? Is it in yourself? Do you not have any confidence? Confidence you can find in Jesus Christ. If it's placed in anyone other than him, then it won't be worth anything when it's put to the test, not least on the day of judgment. The Christian faith is about knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, having an intimate relationship with him. And some of you here may be those who don't know him at all. Some may have known him intimately for years. But we can never know him too well, whether you're starting out in the Christian faith or whether you've been living a life, a godly life all your lives. In this life, there's always room to know Jesus better. And even towards the end of his life here, Paul was saying in verse 20, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ is not just to know the power of his resurrection, the power of knowing that we too will be resurrected from death, that we too will receive new bodies, get rid of these these 
earthly bodies that are wasting away. It's also to share, he says, in his sufferings. As far as Paul is concerned, suffering is a gift from God as much as, as faith is a gift from God. Now, it may, may, may seem a little bit weird to, to give somebody the gift of suffering. But every time we suffer something in this world, every time we, we suffer loss, we are gaining something quite precious. And that is a more intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more Paul saw Jesus working in his life, the more, the more he saw him helping him survive all sorts of suffering, the more he saw him bless his ministry, the way people grew in their faith, they came to faith, the more he wanted to know Jesus, the more he wanted to trust in him. He was always pressing on, it says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but he's pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the sad thing is a lot of people don't win that prize because they, they don't finish the race. And Paul was warning the Philippians, you know, don't let that happen to you. Don't be misled by these people. Well, as I finish and before we prepare to, um, to take communion, if you are somebody here this morning who's not yet a Christian, what sort of a life are you living? Does it bring you a deep lasting joy that will still be there even if the things that are most precious to you were, were taken away? Would you still have a joy? If you do want a true, deep, lasting, eternal joy, can I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has eternal value and the one who will promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've known that experience for yourself, if you know Christ, if you are a believer, then can you truly say, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've lost all things. Because there's something else which you is still holding you back, which you've put your confidence in, you're attempted to put your confidence in. Something else is making you take your focus off Jesus Christ. Then you run the risk of losing out on the joy that he wants us to have. And it's when we enjoy him that he's truly glorified.